You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is Have You Swallowed the Hook, Episode 6, with Thomas Bentley. Welcome again to Have You Swallowed the Hook, a 21st century challenge to the 19th century worldview of evolution. We're so glad you're here for this last presentation in this series. And before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, as we talk about miracles and why it is that they say there are no miracles, I would like to pray for all who are watching this today, asking that you would reveal yourself to them in a very special way. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, as we begin this presentation, I'd like to share with you that science today understands that life really is a miracle. When you think about, as scientists are looking out now, and they're looking at the complexity that we see, the beauty that we have, the information that's contained in there, as they see all the different systems that have to work together in our world, and especially in our universe, and they're looking at all the different things that are so finely tuned, they're just absolutely amazed. Scientists today are coming to the conclusion that life itself is a miracle. Here's an example of one. This scientist's name is George Greenstein. He writes in the Symbiotic Universe, Life and Mind of the Cosmos. He says, as we survey all the evidence, the thought insistency arises that some supernatural agency, or rather agency, capital A, must be involved. It is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled upon scientific proof of the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our benefit? And while scientists are discovering all these things, books are being written like The Privileged Planet, talking about how improbable it is that we could be here without a designer. In the midst of all that, there's this hook. It's the sixth hook, the hook that says there are no miracles. And friends, the place where this hook is trolling to snag individuals is not in a place you would think. It's actually in the Christian church itself. It's in the seminaries where uh, theologians and uh, pastors and priests are being trained. It's in the pews where people are coming innocently thinking they're worshiping the God of the Bible. Here is where we find a new emphasis in evolution. And basically what I'm talking about, I'm talking about evolution coming to church. And you might ask, now how in the world could that possibly happen? Well, let me share with you the history of how it happened. There are the big three things that open the door for evolution to enter into the church. And those big three things are Darwinism, which we have been talking about, liberal theology, and human philosophy. So let's take a look at that for just a moment and see how evolution came into the church. Let's start with the idea of human philosophy. Now, human philosophy is basically human reason and human desires. And what's interesting about human philosophy is that human philosophy can actually mask what is real in our world. Let me give you an example. Many, many years ago, about maybe three, four hundred years before Christ, a man lived named Aristotle. He was a, a, a basically a philosopher. And in his reason and his desires, he believed that the, how you made matter, what things were made up of, like the chair, wood, and everything else, was made up of just two things. It was heat and moisture, hot and cool, and four elementals, water, air, fire, and earth. And all matter was made up of those things. And you know what? For thousands of years, Aristotle's philosophy about how matter originated was the dominant philosophy all the way up into the era of modern science when it was called alchemy. It was a religion at that point. For thousands of years, man's philosophy masked the reality of how matter was really organized. We, know, we call them atoms today. And it's the same thing. When we get to the era of Darwinism, philosophy, uh, once again, was battling against common sense. It was philosophers in the days of Darwin that made a theory of evolution seem possible, even though the evolution theory had no data. How could you believe in something where there was no proof, in other words? These philosophers made it possible. Philosophers like John Locke, David Hume, and Immanuel Kant. And where we can read about this is through the history books. 
Here's one, George M. Marsden, Fundamentalism in American Culture. Here's what he wrote. Some philosophers, particularly those following John Locke, had made our knowledge seem more complicated by interposing ideas between us and the real world. These ideas, they said, were the immediate object of our thought. Hence, we do not apprehend external things directly, but only through ideas of them in our minds. David Hume raised the question of how we can know that those ideas actually correspond to what is there. And so what these philosophers were doing would be like this. Imagine that I have, I'm looking at you right now, (laughs) out here in the, the Amazing Discoveries Langley Theater. Here I am watching you. For these philosophers, you're not really here. You're not the reality. That's something that's in my mind. And how do I know that this reality is really the real reality? Are you getting confused? Well, I am. But this is what these guys were teaching. And this is what made it possible for scientists and theologians to suddenly think that evolution, which had no data, could be possible. Let me give you an example of what he says about people who were believing it. Belief without data. They belong to a philosophical tradition that especially since Kant was willing to see perception as an interpretive process. Hence, they were more open to speculative theories. They nevertheless considered these theories to be reliable inferences from the facts and felt that no modern scientific person (laughs) could seriously doubt them. And so this is how human philosophy was used to open the door for Darwin. So right at the time, as we had Darwinian's theory coming to pass, we had two groups of people. You had those who were following Francis Bacon, Baconian common sense. In other words, show me what the real thing is. I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. I want to experiment. I want to be able to prove that it's real. That was Baconian common sense. You had that whole group battling against another set of scientists who were following these philosophies, believing that it was possible even though there was no data. And so while all this was going on, here's what Marsden says about the group that had Baconian common sense. He says, It was endlessly repeated that true science rested on facts, while evolution was mere hypothesis. This was basic to William Jennings Bryan's argument. It is not scientific truth to which Christians object, he wrote for a speech meant to be the capstone of the trial at Dayton. For true science is classified knowledge, and nothing can be scientific unless it is true according to Baconian common sense. Evolution, on the other hand, is not truth. It is merely hypothesis. It is millions of guesses strung together. It was appalling to Brian, he writes, that a doctrine so destructive to both Christianity and civilization was based on guesses that were absurd as well as groundless. And so you had both of these parties working back and forth. And it was human philosophy, Darwinism, and one more liberal theology that finally pushed open the door for Darwin to enter the church. And let's take a look at that. Now, when we talk about liberal theology, we probably could do a whole seminar on that. But if you wanted to understand it in just very briefly, you need to understand its ethos. And where we can find that is through a historian. His name is uh, Richard Hutchinson. He writes in the book, The Modernist Impulse in American Protestantism, this. What the religious thinker must do is penetrate the meaning of the age, enter into its temper, sympathize with its hopes, blend with its endeavors, helping it by helping its development and saving it by fostering the best elements of its growth. Since the interior spirit of any age is the spirit of God, no religion can resist that spirit and still be a living faith. The church, no church can be strong unless it is allied with it. And what we find here in their ethos is this. In biblical Christianity, the work of the Holy Spirit is seen in the individual and in the body of Christian believers. That's where God is working in His Spirit, but not for the liberal. For the liberal, the Holy Spirit is seen working in the culture. And so the idea would be to look out into the culture, and as the culture shifts and changes, then that must be where God's working, He's not working in here. He's working out there. So that must be where God is working. And so we now align our beliefs with the culture instead of with the Bible. And this is the ethos of liberal theology. This is why we have today churches that basically have adopted as their leadership people who have morality that the Bible calls an abomination. 
It's because they look out into the culture, see what's popular, and adopt it. That's the ethos of liberal theology. He goes on and he quotes about a man named Octavius B. Frothingham. He was one of the leaders in this liberal movement. He says, to Frothingham, the triumph of naturalism, that means Darwinism, naturalistic philosophy, meant the prevalence in the modern world of a subtle and deep conviction that the Spirit of God has its workings in and through nature. In other words, to this man, who was one of the fathers of liberal theology, he saw out there how Darwinism was coming and becoming more popular, and now he believed that that's how God meant it to be all along. Because for liberal, remember, they look into the culture, they think God's Spirit's working there and not in the church or the individual. And that's kind of how it all works. So with these big three, you've got Darwinism, liberal theology, and human philosophy. It opened the door to Christian, the Christian church and in walked Darwin. Uh, Dr. George Knight, he writes in a book on Ellen White's world, he says, The liberals, with their high view of science, virtually cast out all miracles, including such central Christian beliefs as the incarnation and the resurrection of Jesus. And so what we ended up having in Christianity was a split. A split that approximately happened in the 1920s, where all of a sudden you had a biblical worldview and you had a liberal worldview. And so let's take a look at that for a minute. In the biblical worldview, you have creation, a literal six-day, seven-day, actually, creation. In evolution, in the liberal view, you have evolution as a form of creation. And what does that mean? If evolution is the creator, then that means many things have to change. And so things began to change in the halls of the theology classrooms in the seminaries. They began talking about comparative religions. Remember, evolution, for, for, the, for the liberal theologian, we're all evolved, and of course, religion is the highest form of evolution, and so all religions are the same, and so we should look at all religions and see God in all of them. That's kind of the idea, comparative religions, and one of the sure signs of liberal theology is ecumenism. That's where you think that all religions are the same. They all should come together as one. There became this notion of higher criticism and historical criticism, where we would, where they would basically rewrite the Bible, in the image of evolution. That's kind of what it was all about. And here's what we end up with. I remember being at a meeting one time, going to the library, and happened upon this Christianity Today, and my jaw dropped. But it shouldn't have, because this is what's happening in our world today. Here's this Christianity Today, front cover, in search for the historical Adam. Some scholars believe genomic science case doubts the existence of, you know, the first man, basically Adam. And so here Christianity Today has... Uh, you know, like a pre-human here, Adam, on its cover, because evolution is the new norm in Christianity today. Okay, let's go on. In the biblical worldview, you have sin. Sin was where we violate God's moral law of love. But in the liberal view, it's simply just ignorance. In the biblical world, we have the Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and died for our sins as a substitute. He was buried and resurrected, and of course, He's going to be coming again. But in the liberal view, you have ethics. Think about this, new, uh, this U.S. News and World Report that came out. It says, in search of the real Jesus... New research questions whether he was more teacher than savior. And this is kind of how it is thought of in in liberal theology. Jesus is more ethics than really the savior. Biblically, we have history. The Bible itself are historical narratives. They're verified, factualized by archaeology. But in the liberal view, they're fables. And so the idea is to reinterpret them in the light of evolution. One of the people that was a founder of this was a man named Rudolf Boltmann. In the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church, it writes about him, he defined an almost complete split between history and faith, called demythology, writing that only the bare facts of Christ crucified was necessary for Christian faith. And so this is sort of like the Jesus only movement. You know, we don't need history. We don't because we were evolved and and all that stuff's fables anyway. Jesus only kind of idea. But the point is, is that for liberal theology, this is the case. This is you're looking at the Bible. It's not history. They need to allegorize it and uh, give you some other interpretation. In the biblical worldview, you have gospel. 
And in the gospel, one of the parts of the good news is that God, when he saves you, wants to recreate you in your life. He wants to put in back you his own spirit. He wants to put the laws in your heart so that you would practice other person-centered love. And so there's power in the gospel. People who have come to Jesus have seen life transformation because of coming to Christ and having the power and the love of God in their lives. But in liberal theology, all of that returns to ritual. Christianity now becomes more ritualistic, and that was seen in U.S. News and World Reports not too long ago, 2007. An article came out that said, A return to ritual, why many modern worshipers, including Catholics, Jews, and Evangelicals, are embracing tradition. In other words, they're going back to rituals as a form of, of doing Christianity. Because for, for liberal theology and for evolutionists, really all it is, is they call basically, here's what they call it. They call it moralistic therapeutic deism. That's how they see what's happening in Christianity. People are coming there doing rituals, and from the outside they look in. They don't see the miracle of Christ in their lives, and this is how they see us. Uh, Here's an example of of just how that might work. Just recently, November of 2013, we had the most recent pope, Pope Francis. He he reaches out to atheists, atheists and agnostics, and this is what he says. He says, The Pope has struck a surprisingly conciliatory tone towards atheists and agnostics, saying that God will forgive them as long as they behave morally and live according to their consciences. (laughs) In other words, you don't need Jesus to save you. You don't need to have this rebirth in your life. All you got to do is just live the way you feel like you're supposed to live. Everything is good. This is where we are in liberal Christianity today. And of course, in the biblical worldview, you have a second coming, a literal, visible second coming of Jesus Christ. But in the liberal view, there is no coming of Jesus Christ. The church itself now will take control and will basically raise the uh, population of the world through evolution, you know, that kind of thinking. Okay, well, here's the interesting thing. When we get to this modern age, basically something happened between the biblical and the liberal worldview. What happened was this. The biblical worldview began to be called the fundamentalist worldview. And of course, anyone who knows what's happening in the world today will tell you this. The word fundamentalist means what? It means extremist. It means radical. You know, in today's world, a fundamentalist is a negative thing, while the liberal worldview has become the mainstream view of Christianity. And in fact, it really is. The mainstream of all the theological seminaries in America today and in the world, and the mainstream of all the churches in the world have adopted their leadership, have adopted these hooks of evolution. They are now in that camp. Just think about the results of that. Time Magazine reported on November 4th, 1996, Vatican thinking evolves. The Pope gives his blessing to natural selection, though man's soul remains beyond science's reach. Well, of course, we learned that natural selection cannot cause one kind of life to morph into another. But yet, here's this man now endorsing evolution for all of his flocks. You know, Dr. Henry Morris writes about this. He says, perhaps the most influential evolutionist among Catholic theologians was the Jesuit priest Teilhard de Chardin now considered, in effect, to be almost the patron saint of the New Age movement with its strong pantheistic evolutionism. He goes on to say, Teilhard was involved in the controversial discoveries of both the Pitdow Man and the Peking Man. Now remember, these were fossil fakes, insidious fossil fakes, and vigorously promoted total evolutionism all his life, greatly influencing such leading secular evolutionists as Theodosius Davinsky, George Gaylord Simpson, and Sir Julian Huxley. These are the big-name atheists now. And here's this guy influencing them. He goes on to say, His books were banned at one time by the Catholic Church, but have apparently become respectable and even influential among Catholics during the reigns of the more recent liberal popes. And so this is what's happening in our world. I think we need to take a look at what this man actually believed. This is from something he wrote called The Phenomenon of Man in 1965. He said, Is evolution a theory, a system, or a hypothesis? 
It is much more. It is a general condition to which all theories, all systems, all hypotheses must bow. Evolution is a light illuminating all facts, a curve that all lines must follow. In other words, what he's saying is that, that everything on this planet should bow. Christianity should bow. All religions should bow at the calf idol of evolution. And this is exactly what's happened in Christianity today. Take the Protestant churches, for example. New York Times reported this in 2006. It was the, the title of the article was At Churches Nationwide, Good Words for Evolution. The event called Evolution Sunday is an outgrowth of the clergy letter project started by academics and ministers in Wisconsin in early 2005 as a response to efforts, most notably in Dover, Pennsylvania, to discredit the teaching of evolutionary theory in public schools. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine clergy coming out and saying, don't you dare teach creation in public schools? (laughs) I can't imagine that myself. Most of the signatories to the project and those preaching on Sunday were from the mainline Protestant denominations. Their congregations have shrunk sharply over the last 30 years. At the same time, the number of evangelical and fundamentalist Christians has risen considerably, and many of them, because of their literalist view in the Bible, doubt the evolutionary theory. You know, some people actually can make sense in this world. And so what we have in our world today, this hook that's just being trolled through the pews of the churches of America and in the theological seminaries of the world, is this hook to snag you into believing that there are no miracles. Why? Because evolution is how everything got here. And so this is what we see today. But, you know, I want to share with you, friends, I would like to actually encourage you to study the Bible, because inside the Bible, we find actual miracles. Places where our Creator God actually speaks to us and reveals to us what will come to pass. Miracles that we call Bible prophecy. And, and I would like to share two of them with you. I would like to share one miracle that happened in the distant past, and another miracle that is happening right now. A revelation of God to us right now. A miracle that is happening at this moment as I speak here today. Are you interested in that? Okay, well, let's take a look. There are five things I want you to share about Bible prophecy and why it is that it is such an amazing miracle. The first thing is this. Bible prophecy is God's chosen method to communicate with His creation. Amos 3.7 says, Surely the Lord does nothing unless He reveals His secret to His servants, the prophets. This is how God reveals His will to us. Number two, the Bible prophecy only can be interpreted by using the Bible itself. That's the safest method. Allow the Bible to interpret itself. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And so we cannot interpret it, bring our own interpretations. We need to look at the Bible to interpret it. Number three, fact about prophecy is that it's predictive. Let me share with what I mean. The Bible says, think about Daniel. One of the first prophecies that we have in the Bible and in the book of Daniel is a prophecy of a metal man, a man that has a head of gold and arms of silver and thighs of brass and legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And what we discover by allowing the Bible to interpret itself that this little metal man was a basically a chronology of history from the days of Nebuchadnezzar all the way to the end of time when Jesus comes back. And that's the amazing miracle of prophecy, that it's predictive in its nature. Number four, Prophecy is moral. When I think about John the Baptist and his message, repent and be ready to meet the Lord. Read the Messiah that is coming. Are you ready to meet God? Prophecy all throughout its history has been redemptive. It's been moral, drawing people back to a knowledge of the Creator God. And finally, prophecy strengthens our faith. Because when we see prophecy come to pass, it is life-changing. John 14, 29, Jesus said, Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. And so I would like to share with you a prophecy, a time prophecy that I pray will help strengthen your faith and show you the miracle of Bible prophecy. This time prophecy takes place in the book of Daniel. 
The character here is Daniel. He had been in captivity for many, many years. And according to the prophecy of Jeremiah, he was looking forward for the exiles to return back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and the city. And so as he's praying to God, wondering what's going on, we find out what's in his mind. Daniel nine seventeen to 18. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. He's very concerned with the city Jerusalem. Now let's take a look at what happens. Daniel 9, 21 to 22. While I was still speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instructions and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. So let's see what he says. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. And then he said, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. And so what this angel messenger from God was showing him was that the answer to his questions really wasn't in the city as much as it was, was in the Messiah. This whole prophecy focuses on the coming of the Messiah. And who is the Messiah? Well, the name Messiah in the, the Old Testament Hebrew and Christ in the New Testament Greek is the Anointed One. And Jesus Christ was that anointed one that we are referring to. And, and let's ask the question, when was Jesus anointed? The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, verse 32, it was at his baptism. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. It anointed him. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. And we know the exact year that that took place because of one of the amazing things about the New Testament is that the one date that we have in the New Testament that dates what something Jesus did was the date of his baptism. Luke 3, 1 to 22, it says, Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, and he came into the, all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And so we know it was in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And historical annals tell us that we can take that day to the year A.D. 27. And so this prophecy given to Daniel about the coming of the Messiah, it ends at the date A.D. 27, the baptism of Jesus, the anointed one, when Jesus was anointed. Okay, let's go back to this prophecy and see when did that begin. It says, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince. Okay, so now we need to know the starting date. It was the issuing of a decree to restore and build Jerusalem. Now, if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll find out there were several decrees in the book of Ezra. And here they are. There was the decree of Cyrus that allowed them to go back and start the temple. There was the decree of Darius that allowed the same thing. But it was the third decree of Artaxerxes that gave them all political and monetary ability to actually restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That third decree we find in the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 8. It was in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. There are four different historical sources that tell us that year was 457 before Christ. And so now that we have the beginning date of this prophecy, we can go back and take a look at what's happening. We have building, rebuilding Jerusalem, the decree, 457 before Christ, the baptism of Jesus, 27 AD. And if you do the math, you'll find out that equals to be 483 years. So this prophecy is amazing. It was given to Daniel 483 years well, actually, even longer than that when you think about it, but at least 483 years before it happened. And if you do the math, by the way, I want to share with you that a number line 
has a zero in it, but a timeline does not. So when you do that math, you'll have to add a one uh, when you try it at home. Okay, so we know now what this prophecy was about, the coming of the Messiah. We know when that was. We know when this uh, prophecy began. And now let's take a look and see if the time date matches up. Okay, it says, So you're to know from the issuing of the decree to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with, uh, in times of distress. Now let's think about that. Seven weeks and 62 weeks. Okay, how's that going to work? That doesn't sound right, does it? Weeks? Well, let's, let's go to Dr. William Shea and try to help ourselves out. In his book, uh, Daniel 7-12 to from the Bible Amplifier series, he writes this, The use of the word weeks brings with it the clear idea that symbolic time is involved. No commentator holds that all the predicted events could have taken place in a literal year and a half. And so if symbolic time is what we're talking about, how can we understand that? Well, one of the ways is to allow the Bible to interpret itself. Because in the Bible, there are other prophecies that involve a day becoming a literal year. Let's look at one of them. Ezekiel 4.6, it says, When you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. I have assigned it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. And if we allow the Bible to interpret itself and apply that, what we find then is this. We rebuild in seven weeks. That would be seven years. The Messiah, excuse me, it would be seven times seven. The Messiah would come in seven times 62 weeks. So let's put that down. That'd be 69 weeks or 483 days or 483 years. And what do we find? We find that this prophecy is exactly on time. This is a miracle of prophecy. You know, centuries before it ever happened, God predicts the coming of the anointed one. And this prophecy is right down to the year. That is a miracle, friends. It's a miracle of Bible prophecy. And, and Jesus himself, in Mark 1.5, tells us, he says, the time is fulfilled. That's the time of the prophecy of Daniel. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Amen. Dr. William Shea, you know, some people might say, well, especially revisionists or liberal theologians, they might say, well, that was just written after the fact. You know, somebody went and wrote that after all these things happened. Dr. William Shea answers that objection. He says, Daniel's Aramaic is simply classified as imperial Aramaic. That's the original language it was written in. Meaning that it fits well within the dates of the Persian Empire from the 7th through the 4th centuries B.C. In other words, the very language that this was written in was a language of the people written in that time. And of course, there's another proof that we have, and that's the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves. This uh, miracle of finding at Qumran, all these scrolls that had the Bible in them and they had the book of Daniel in them, written well over 150 years before Christ. So we know that these are actual miracles. And Bible prophecy is a miracle. It is our Creator God's method of communicating with us, showing us what's to come, what's to happen in our world today. And it should give you faith. But now I would like to end with one more miracle, a miracle that's happening right now today. And that's a miracle that we find in the prophecy that's called the Revelation. And the book of Revelation is not simply a prophecy about strange beasts and funny things that are happening. It is really the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. The very first words are apocalypsis Jesus Christu, which means the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus Christ. And so the book of Revelation is actually a revealing of Jesus to his church. And that should give us great comfort. Scholars have seen that there is a chiastic structure in the book of Revelation that forms all of it. Let me share you what it is. In the first part of Revelation, chapter 12 to 20, you see Jesus standing among the seven golden candlesticks. And you're going to see that all of these images are related to the sanctuary of the Old Testament. He's on the earth with his church or his people. At the end of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 21, 22, we find Jesus again back on the earth with the earth made new and a new heavens and a new earth. And the temple then is God himself. And then in between, we have this scenes that are happening up in heaven. The first is in Revelation 4 and 5, we find an inauguration, an inauguration where the Lamb who is worthy to, re- to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God picks up this sealed scroll and begins unscrolling this seven-scrolled seal. 
And at the, in contrast to that, in Revelation chapter 19, 1 to 10, you have absence. Here you have this heavenly voices, but you can see nothing of the heavenly temple because it is absent at that point. Revelation 8, chapter 3 to 5, you find intercession. There's a picture of someone coming to this altar that was sitting out there where they had the burnt sacrifices, picking up some coals, putting it in an altar, taking it inside the holy place, and there adding incense and offering it up before God, the prayers of the saints going up. You see that as intercession in the book of Revelation. In contrast to that, in chapter 15, verses 5 to 6, you see a cessation of all intercession as the God himself fills the temple and no man could enter the temple and the plagues are about to be poured out upon the earth. And right in the center of Revelation, the very center point of the conflict at the very end of time, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 19, you see heaven open and you see the Ark of the Covenant and there you see the law of God, this holy law of God that is of other person-focused love that has been broken by all humanity. There it sees, and it sets the stage for the end-time judgment, which happens in chapters 12, 13, and 14, all the way to the end. And so where we're going to focus in the book of Revelation is at this time of judgment, the very center part of the book of Revelation, where judgment is happening on the people of the earth. And where you can find this great controversy is happening in Revelation chapter 13 and Revelation chapter 14. I'm going to briefly just give you a synopsis of what's happening there. In Revelation chapter 13, we have a great deception that's happening upon the earth. There is enforced worldwide worship, and there's this thing called the mark of the beast. In contrast to that deception, we have in Revelation 14 a worldwide message that's leading up to the second coming of God. And I like to talk about that message because in it we find this miracle of prophecy that's happening right now. Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 and 7 begins this message. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So we see at the end of time, this is a gospel message going out to the entire world. But what does it say? It's including this. It says with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him, because the hour of His judgment has come. And here is the main point of why we should fear God, why we should give glory to Him. And it's right here. Worship Him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Right here in the midst of this last day message, at the very end of time when you have this controversy brewing, you have a message calling people to go back to worshiping the Creator God of the Bible. And if you look at this and you have some knowledge of the Bible, you'll notice that this is almost a direct quotation from the fourth commandment that we find in God's moral law of love. Look at it, Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your sons, or your daughters, or your male servant, or your female servants, or the livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And of course, the fourth commandment tells us to remember, which tells me that it's not talking about something new. It's talking about something old. And what is the fourth commandment pointing to? Well, friends, it's pointing to the seventh day of the creation week. Genesis 2, 3, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work, which God had created and had made. And so what we find in this end-time prophecy is that from Revelation chapter 14, as the time as one side of the world is worshiping the image of the beast, worshiping this worldwide worship command, the other side is being told, no, no, worship God as the Creator. Pointing it all the way back to Genesis, pointing to creation week. And the focus of all of this is this Sabbath, the seventh day of the creation week. You know, if if you don't understand what the Sabbath is for some reason, let me explain to you that a day we get from the rotation of the earth. You know, that was at creation. And, of course, a month we get from the cycle of a moon. That was at creation as well. A year we get from the cycle of the earth around the sun. But the weekly cycle is specifically from the creation week. 
It's the seventh day. And the Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week, or Saturday. If you were to look at a Webster's Dictionary, look up the word Saturday, it'll say the seventh day of the week. It's pretty easy to know. It's not lost from history. Uh, Over 140 languages of our world have as the seventh day the day Sabbath. I have a lot of Hispanic friends that have come to Jesus in churches that I've had, and I come to church to them, I say, Feliz Sabado. And they look at me, yes, happy Saturday. Because the word Sabado is the word, for Sabbath is the word Saturday in the Spanish language. And all kinds of languages have the word Sabbath in them as their language. It's kind of interesting. And if you still can't find the order of events, just look at the day before Jesus was crucified. You know, the order of events, Jesus was uh, he died on the cross on Friday. He was put into that tomb that day. It was called the preparation day. On Saturday, that was the Sabbath day, he rested in the tomb. And then on the first day of the week, the tomb was empty. Jesus had resurrected. And so if you know which day the first day of the week is, Sunday, then you can just go back one day and you know the biblical day, the seventh day of the week, that's referred to in this prophecy that happens at the very end of time, the seventh day. You know, some people, myself included, have always wondered, well, you know, have they ever changed calendars and that changed the weekly cycle? Well, you know, they have changed calendars, but it never did change the weekly cycle. Uh, In this particular calendar change in October of 1582, Thursday the 4th just became Friday the 15th. There was no change to that weekly cycle. I've often wondered, what about uh, in, in proud history? Is there some way that the days or the weeks could have gotten mixed up? Well, the answer to that is no. Uh, astronomy tells us today that you, they have record of all of that. They can trace it all back. There's never been a loss of a day in history. That's cool. And so we have this seventh day. And when you look at the seventh day, the, the, it says that God blessed it. I think anything that God blesses, we should take notice of because there's a blessing in it. God sanctified it. And I'd like to talk about that for a minute. You know, what does it mean to sanctify something? You know, I, I am married, and the day that I got married, I was set apart for my wife. She was set apart for me. That's what marriage is. We were made one. We were married. We were sanctified in that marriage. And, and every year that goes around, we remember that sanctified day by our anniversary. That anniversary tells us that we were sanctified, and, we were, and this is the situation. Well, if someone were to come along and move my anniversary, it would have no meaning, wouldn't it? <laughs> It would just lose its meaning because it was moved. It was, we were sanctified on that day. That's our anniversary. The Sabbath is the same thing. God sanctified it. He set it apart for humanity to be a time when we would remember Him as our Creator God. And when we rest and we stop our work and we worship together, we're showing God that we love Him. You know, the truest form of worship is when you rest on the seventh day of the week. You can, you, know, you can go to a church and they've got this great worship band and everybody's standing up with their hands and they're thinking they're worshiping God emotionally. Uh-uh. The greatest worship you could do to God is to do it God's way. That's true worship. And of course, God rested on it. If God rested on this day, if Jesus rested on this day, should that not be a sign for us to do the same? And I know that many people think, as a matter of fact, when I was in one district, I remember working in a neighborhood as a Bible worker and hearing people, the neighbors say, oh, that's Jewish. That's a Jewish thing. You know, the, the Sabbath was never intended exclusively for the Jews. Why? Because it was at creation. We're all people. It involves all of humanity, all of God's children. Jesus said the same thing. Mark two twenty seven. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Sabbath was made for humanity, for all of us. It was a gift from God so that we would remember Him. And so here is this prophecy at the end of time. The controversy that exists in the time is that one side says, worship the image of the beast. The other side says, worship Him who created. The issue at the end is an issue over a system of worship that is no longer worshiping God as the Creator versus a system of worship that's calling people back to fear God, give Him glory, worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. This is the issue at the end of time. This, my friends, is a prophecy that is going on right this minute because Christianity, the mainstream of Christianity, has now moved away from worshiping God as the Creator to worshiping a God who 
is not the creator. Think about it. There are now pastors and Christians and priests out there that are saying, then Jesus used evolution to make. I always thought about that. How can someone believe, be a Christian, and believe that Jesus used evolution to create something? Jesus would take off his mantle as Lord and Savior and Creator and then ascribe it to something else, a natural process filled with atheism and filled with awfulness. I can't even imagine it, but it's happening today. And friends, let me share with you something. What Jesus are they referring to? Today there are people that are referring to a Jesus that I don't know. I don't see that Jesus in my Bible. Give me an example. This is the Jesus I see in the Bible. Colossians 1.16 For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus said, But from the beginning, God created them, male and female. The Jesus that I know in the Bible was the one who created the first prototype humans. The Jesus that I know in the Bible is the one who redeemed them as well. And so, friends, what we have in the world today is we have a world where there are hooks being driven right through the, the, the pews of the church, through the theological seminaries, hooks snagging people into worshiping something other than the Creator God. I remember one time when I was in a district in Minnesota, I went to the local ministerium, and there we were coming together. We had a ministerium that had evangelicals, Lutherans, and, um, and a Catholic priest was there. And we had a guy who was sharing with us how evolution was atheism. And we were all agreeing with them, and it was amazing. And then I kind of looked over at the, the Lutheran pastor, the evangelical Lutheran pastor in the, in the Catholic, and I said, so tell me, you know, Jesus... It said exactly what I said. They made them male and female. Jesus believed in creation. And the Lutheran pastor looked at me and said, Jesus was mistaken when he said that. And this is what's happening in Christianity. The leadership has changed. There's a sea change happening in Christianity today. But friends, while this is happening, there's a prophecy that's being fulfilled as I speak, a prophecy that's calling those people back to worship the God who created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. This is a miracle because this prophecy is going on now. It's happening today. And you know, there's a second message that goes with it. It says, another angel, a second one followed, saying with a loud voice, fallen is Babylon, the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Babylon in the end is the church. Babylon becomes the church because she has rejected the Creator God and the day in which He has shown that we should worship Him and has gone off to worship the calf idols of evolution, calling it Christianity in the end. You know, all parts of the Bible talk about this is the moment in history when this would occur. Think about the messages to the the seven churches. Many scholars believe those messages talk about the ages of the church and different characteristics of the church at different ages. Look at the message to the church of Laodicea. In each of these messages of the seven churches, Jesus gives a picture of himself to each one, a picture that each one of them needs to see of who he is. Look what he says to the church at Laodicea, the last church. He says in Revelation three fourteen to 15, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Jesus comes to the last day church as the creator. He tells them, You're spiritually blind. You have absolutely no idea what's happening to me. And the most amazing thing is he says this to them. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Do you realize that at the end time, the last day church, the Jesus of the Bible is not actually in the church. He's standing outside the doors of the church and he's knocking on the doors of the church. And he's saying, if anyone hears my voice in there and opens a door, I will come into them and dine with them and he with me. All throughout the book of Revelation, it's pointing to this last moment in earth's history when there's this controversy that's happening right now. A controversy over worshiping God as the creator. 
The text says, worship him who made the heaven and the earth, the seas and the springs of waters. Friends, are you wanting to do that today? Have you seen in this series that we've been going through that the evolution worldview is bankrupt? That it is essentially atheism. It is essentially a worldview that is not anywhere near what we would want to have in our world today. I hope that you have seen in this series that the God who made you, who created you, is a God worthy of worship. And I'm asking you right now to make a decision. See, Jesus said this in John 17, 3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Today, friends, there is a controversy brewing where you have whole sets of Christianities today that do not know the true God. And there's a call that's happening right now, a prophetic call that's happening saying, come out of her, my people. Come out of her. Come back to worshiping and knowing the true God of creation. Are you willing to do that today? You know, friends, as I speak this, because this is the last battle in Revelation, time is running out. You don't have time to think about making this decision next week, next month, maybe next year. Now is the time to decide, are you willing to worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, the seas and the fountains of waters? Are you willing to worship the God of creation? Friends, I want to make an appeal to you once again that if you now have made this decision, you said to yourself, I will worship the God who made the heavens and the earth, the seas and fountains and waters. I will worship Him on the day that He has told us that prophecy tells us is the very issue at the very end of time. Send us a letter at Amazing Discoveries. Let us know what you have decided. And I pray that if you've watched this series, that you've been blessed and that you will share it with someone else so that they too can worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. Well, thank you so much for being with us, and may God bless you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for those people that have been here today, those that are watching this, those that will be watching this, that this series will change the way they see their world, change the way they see themselves and their relationship with you, our Creator God. I pray that they will come to Jesus and know Him as Creator and Savior. And I thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless all of you. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And... As always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.